This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. On today's show, the front woman of Polisa will talk about almost giving up on her music career until she fell off her roof. After the accident, her doctor told her to rewrite the memory of what happened so that memory wouldn't be so traumatic. That advice changed the way she approached the songwriting on Polisa's latest album. I kind of started to look at all my songs and, and realize, oh yeah, I've been kind of rewriting my story, but in a lot of ways rewriting it into like a sadder version of the truth. We'll look at issues around non-compete and radius clauses for festivals and performers, like Coachella's radius clause that bans artists from performing in a 1,300-mile radius around the festival site for months. 1,300 miles would be telling someone that You're playing an event in Miami, and you can't play an event in Philadelphia. We'll hear music from Tacoma's Guayaba, whose nightmares, trauma, and the worry of death influenced her latest record. I have, like, a lot of specific things that happen in my dreams. Like, there's always, like, rivers filled with crocodiles, or I'm always getting, like, chased by packs of wild dogs. But first, Josiah Johnson. Been talking about the way things change. You might recognize his voice from his time with Head in the Heart. He struggled with addiction during his time with Head in the Heart, was removed from the band, and has since focused on sobriety and transitioned into a solo career. He has his first single out as a solo artist. It's called The World's Not Gonna End. Josiah Johnson will be performing in the Pacific Northwest this week with a stop at Connor Byrne Pub in Seattle's Ballard neighborhood on Thursday. Josiah Johnson joins me now to talk about his musical journey through addiction and sobriety and new solo career. Hello, Josiah. Hello, Emily. So Connor Byrne Pub in Ballard. Yes. This has some significance, right? It's a thing. It's a thing. Is this where Head in the Heart first met? That's where the open mic was that, um, that I met John and Kenny and Chris and yeah. Yes, a lot of things happened there. So it was like kind of like the almost the beginning of you know your musical. It was career. like our yeah. It was like our like cocoon slash like just gestation period was all was all there. I ran the open mic for like a year, and and just like any songs we were writing, just you know if it was like at two thirty in the morning after it had closed down, we were still playing, and you know every week. So it was, it, was a, it was a wonderful place and a wonderful time. So you are now doing a solo career now. You're on this tour. Can we, can we go back a little bit? Um, so, so how long has it been since you've no longer been with Head in the Heart? It was the end of 2015, officially, when, when they were like, you can't be here. We more want you to be alive than to try and keep going with us as is. Are you willing to elaborate on that? Like they want we you to be alive. Like, we were like recording Signs of Light and it was the first week there and I like disappeared for a day and didn't show up to the studio and didn't answer phone calls or texts or anything. And um, which is a really, you know, not nice thing to do and like out of out of control for me. And And they were just like, we love you. Like, go figure your stuff out. And like, we can't like worry about, we need to focus. We, we can't worry about whether or not you're alive. And, um, 
Yeah. And then, and there was like, it was always like, please figure your stuff out and like, please come back when you, when you feel like it's, it's sorted and when you feel solid. So Are you that was a really wonderful like gift that they gave me. Cause I, I needed someone to give me permission to just go like, I don't have to try and keep holding it all together. Um, because I couldn't. So you were struggling with addiction at the time. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to talk about just kind of what was happening in your life personally when, you know, back in 2015? I think I had done a, a poor job of taking care of myself when we toured, even more so than like your average bear uh, does. And um, I didn't keep in touch with friends at home. And I didn't, you know, share, you know, about like ha- hard feelings or, or like confusion that I had. And so... I would be on tour, be having a hard time, like, you know, drink to just deal. And then I would get home and I would really not know what to do with myself and didn't have any kind of support system or like habits for like reaching out to people and, and just kind of really lose, lose myself and, and just this cycle. And, and then like, and then that affects, you know, like creativity. I didn't have really any relationship with it to speak of. And so then I'd, come back to the band, you know, and John had written a bunch of wonderful songs and, um, and like, I didn't have any. And then I felt worse about myself. It was just this weird, this terrible cycle. Um, and, um, and so it was, it was really, it was really just that of just not knowing how to deal. And then, and then like letting that kind of spiral, spiral down the, the drain. But I mean, I can, I can imagine touring can be so hard. We've talked a lot uh, about this a lot on KEXP and Sound and Vision where it's just like you're on tour, you're playing all these shows at night, you know, you're kind of like in this party atmosphere in a way. Mm-hmm. And then you're away from your normal life. You're kind of living this separate life. You come back to your normal life and you're like, life has gone on without me and now I'm having to readjust back yeah. home. And so there's two dueling things is one, you know, being able to, you know, being on tour, going from city to city, having to perform, put on this face, you know, be energized, partying is probably included, yeah. and then adjusting to life back home. I mean, yeah. is that kind of what started, you know, everything off for you if, in terms of just issues around addiction? Um, I definitely remember, I definitely remember leaving with, with, with Hen the Heart the first couple of years. Um, we were gone, I think, like 11 months the first year that we were really touring and then 10 months the next year. And so like two years passed, we were pretty much gone all the time. And I remember coming back home and like all of my like friend group that I had, like had different friends and they had different inside jokes. And I just like, I just was like, I don't know where I belong now. You know, like that, that was totally a thing too, where, where you just like, in addition to like how difficult it is to be on the road coming home and not, and I didn't know how to like reintegrate either. So, yeah. That's hard. Yeah. Can you talk about your decision to to go on and start making music solo? Um, it was less of a decision. Like I actually when I when I um when Head in the Heart was like, You can't be here right now, but please go get solid and you can come back whenever you like. I remember just thinking that I didn't know what the future was gonna hold and I knew myself well enough to know that if I was like trying to get back there that I would take any kind of shortcuts to like figure out, you know, like I need to get, I need to get back as quickly as possible kind of thing. And, and so like for me, the, the mental trick was to just go like, I just have to let that go like altogether. And then if it comes back, it comes back, but I can't even like think about that at all. And so I like, I like let it go. And I said, I'm not going to play 
music anymore. I don't have a relationship with it anyways. So it's, it's not like a, a big loss right now. And I just was trying to figure myself out and trying to figure out how to like deal with life. And then like pretty quickly I started doing the thing that I like have done for most of my like post adolescent life, which is like write songs to figure out, you know, like what my feelings were. And then I started writing songs and not worrying about like whether or not they were good enough. And it just like started, it just started like making, making sense again. But it's like the, you, you didn't put the pressure on yourself to be like, I got to get back to head in the heart. You, cause you, you wanted to kind of do it on your own terms. Um, you didn't have that pressure to, to hit a certain goal mark to get it's like, back. It's less like on my own terms and more just like, didn't want to, a thing that my brain does is like, see what it, see what it's trying to get and like, try and do whatever it needs to get there or say whatever it needs to say to get there. And, and that doesn't like always serve me, you know? And I think like if I made the goal of like, I want to be back in head in the heart, then I would take shortcuts that I like didn't feel like would actually be beneficial, you know, to, to healing this body. Yeah. But also you were able to find creativity on your own and you were able to write songs again to process your feelings. Um, how has songwriting been for you personally, you know, to just tap into your inner self, you know, you're working on stuff as a solo artist. How has that been kind of on the path to recovery, you know, following addiction? Um, the best way to think about that would be that I've like encountered, this is very, this is very, I live in the Bay area now. Um, I encountered the, like that, that like a song is like medicine, you know, like whether it's like for healing or for, you know, like isolation or for, you know, whatever else is medicine of some kind. And, and I started writing songs that like, that when I sang them, like the medicine that I was taking was like, was for wholeness, you know? And, um, and, and songs and songs that I would write, like would kind of come to me in like flashes, you know, like, like I wouldn't write anything for weeks. I would like show up and, and try and think, things to sing and like it wouldn't make sense but then like I would just like hold my hands out and like something would drop from the sky and 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 it would be something that I would never have been able to like tell myself on my own but here I had this artifact that was just like you're going to be okay you know like you're worried that you know that that everything's over or or, you know that you can't go back to where you've been but like but like you'll get there you know like be patient and and like and I couldn't have told myself that consciously and and so there was this like like receiving (laughs) receiving gifts of songs as opposed to writing them that's amazing so you have a new single out um it's called world's not gonna end What is this song about? This song is is one of the songs that that I was definitely thinking about when I was talking about that celebration of a hard situation of just like seeing like I'm here in this mess and yet like it's going to be okay. And I like see that on the other side of this hardship is like transformation and like growth. That was one of the first songs that I wrote for this album. And I just remember driving back down 
to my parents' house. I lived with my parents for a couple of years, um, which was like humbling to get used to when you're like 30 something and um, have been living your dream for a while, traveling around the world, playing music. Um, but I was driving home. Actually, I went. It was a Damien Dorado show in San Francisco, and I and I was driving home. And just like I just like was feeling really strongly the like the absence of the life that I used to have. You know, I was just like, there's this person that I like used to play music with in Seattle that I just saw on stage and it was such a beautiful show. And and I like wanted to get back there and I like and I was driving and I remember I just had this like moment of peace and clarity where I was just like, I feel up against a wall right now. I feel like there's no way out of this hole that I've dug myself into, but but I, rem I remember saying a lot around then like that life is long in this like really uh, in this like really heartening way where it was just like, oh, yeah, this might be where I am right now. But like, I know that life is long and I know that I know where I was two years ago is drastically different than where I am now. And I bet that where I will be in two years is drastically different than where I am now. So just like the chorus of this, the song is just like uh, the world's not going to end if you do not get your way again. And I just remember making peace with that like it's not the time if it's not the time for you right now like that is totally fine if you do not get your way again my friend so i notice there are parts in this song and parts of other songs you've written where you almost start you start um writing from a female perspective yeah like you have a line in this song world's not going to end um the greatest task for the modern woman like me is to find what is within herself. The greatest task for the modern woman like me is to find what is within herself. It's just a And there's a few other songs that you've written um, since you've gone solo that are also kind of written from a female's perspective. Yeah. Why kind of get into that that element or that way, uh, that perspective within a song? Another thing that I kept running into um, a lot in this, in the process of, of trying to heal and, and get sober was that like, that I didn't have a lot of tools. I mean, we were talking about it a lot now. It's like, no, it's no secret that like, men were trained really poorly, you know? Um, you can't talk about your feelings. Yeah. You can't show emotion. You yeah. got to be tough and like let it all in, you know, yeah. toughen up. Yeah. 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 So, so I was just, it was, it was interesting to like, it was interesting to realize that like where I was getting all of my wisdom from and the part of myself that I was having to activate if I was going to like heal was a part of myself that wasn't like manly or, and it wasn't, I wasn't getting the wisdom from like my man friends, mm -hmm. man friend is, uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, but like the people that knew how to like be soft and the people who knew how to be humble and the people who knew how to apologize, like with grace were none of the men that I had as role models in my life. And like women did it like pretty second naturedly uh, around me. Um, and and I think I think I thought a lot about just like activating the the female half of my soul in like in this whole process of just going like now is not the time for the part of you that is like characteristically male. Um, we don't really have use for those traits right now. Um, 
So I think that that that's kind of where a lot of that gender playing comes from. So now you're on tour um, as a solo artist. Um, you know, considering you're, you you had been on tour for a lot of your career, like you said, for like a year or ten months at a time. Mm-hmm. What is it like for you being back on tour, and how do you bring you know balance to your life to make sure that you maintain you know that that you're healthy emotionally, spiritually, creatively? The people that I tour with are people that that I that I like can rely on emotionally. I I use 12 set meetings to help me stay sober. And so I go to those on the road. I give myself permission to not stay out late, which is like, I like still foam, like I still FOMO so much, you know, I think like I would have so many more connections and so many more like cool experiences if I like stayed up until two in the morning and whatever. And, but, um, there's like a different like focus, you know, um, it's like, I'm here to like do this thing. I'm here to like play these songs. I'm here to like connect with people at the show. And I like trust that even if it takes longer, even if it's like a slower build that like, that like showing up well and like consistently and like holding this thing and it's so rewarding. And so I think there's, I think there's just some element of like trusting and being patient. And then there's like all sorts of like little self care things. Actually on this tour, we've got people coming most shows I think in between soundcheck and the show to lead us in like a yoga routine in the venue um which which I'm excited about um that's Faustine's idea yeah we're just like trying to see what like what like other ways like what creative ways we can we can do to like have different tour habits that are that like help us That was my conversation with Josiah Johnson. His latest single is called The World's Not Gonna End. He'll be performing in the Pacific Northwest this week. And before we move on to our next story, I have a question for you. As it stands now, Sound and Vision is a music magazine bringing you lots of stories from different musicians and topics in the music world each week. But instead of packaging everything together in one long podcast, would you rather we released individual stories and interviews as their own episode of the podcast? So one interview or story and episode. It is something that we'll be playing with in the coming weeks and months. And if you like the way the podcast is or like the idea of one story and episode, let us know. We want to hear your feedback. Let us know what you think. Sound and vision at kexp.org. That's sound and vision at kexp.org. And we'd also love to know what stories you gravitate towards in the podcast so we can make this podcast better for you. Okay, now on to our next guest, Polisa. Lisa released a new album on Friday. It's called When We Stay Alive. Half of the album was written before frontwoman Chani Lena was about to give up on a music career. The other half was written after she fell off her roof while clearing snow. She was left in a back brace and couldn't work, clean, or even take care of her children for a few months. Chani Lena joins us now to talk about her journey that led to this new record. Hi, Chani. Hi, good to talk to you. So take us back to the days and weeks around, you know, your fall. What happened and how did that fall impact you on a personal and creative level? I was working as a nursing assistant at the time and um, and also teaching preschool. I was doing like the usual American hustle. And um, I was also living in Minnesota where I was raised and 
a typical thing we have to do in the winter is clear our roof of snow because it gets so heavy that it starts creating these giant icicles that can then leak into your roof and cause like, you know, a thousand dollars worth of damage. And I just, you know, like it happens sometimes I just slipped and lost my grip and fell 10 feet and from the roof and I compressed my L1 and then just kind of knocked my spine up pretty bad. And, you know, looking at it now, 10 feet isn't that far, but our bodies are not made of rubber. So, yeah, that's that's an impact. So after your accident, um, your doctor had suggested that you write the story you told yourself about your fall from your roof. Yeah, rewrite that story. So it was like a creative process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you did you end up following your doctor's advice, like kind of using this as kind of like a therapeutic um, method to rewrite the story that you told yourself? I definitely did because I went to see him about a month after it had happened. This was more like my primary doctor. So at this point, I'd already like been to the ER. I'd seen this neurologist and I was getting care. And his point was that it doesn't matter anymore that it happened. Um, And he could see kind of the shame and disappointment in my face because I'm not a single person who, you know... um, whose actions don't really affect that many people. I have children. And so it was a heavy consequence because um, not just myself suffered. And so his idea was, it doesn't matter that it happened anymore. And I need to rewrite the story that I'm telling myself in my head so that when I imagine it, to imagine that something different happened than did. Like I fell onto a puffy cloud or, you know, like my friend lifted me off the ladder and was like, what are you doing? That's insane. (laughs) You know, get down. Um, And instead of doing this kind of rehashing, like, why did I do that? How did this happen? How did I get here? Just being like, hey, this is how it happened. And then when you can think about it again, it doesn't bring up a lot of pain for me anymore. And I can just kind of move on from it and move forward because I'm not really trying to find my identity in accidents or in trauma in my life. I'm trying to you know, get stronger and move forward and be able to go with the flow of life, which is filled with a lot of pain for everyone and a lot of, you know, mistakes and accidents. And we just, we have to be able to be resilient and move forward. And that's what he was getting at. And in that sense, I could kind of use that creatively in a lot of different areas of my life and kind of think about how that works with other stories I'd been telling myself. That's amazing. You know, after you kind of got the advice from your from your doctor to retell your story, um, to kind of change the narrative, did that impact your songwriting? I mean, are there songs on this latest album of yours that capture kind of this rewriting process? Yeah. Um, I kind of started to look at all my songs and, and realize, oh, yeah, I've been kind of rewriting my story, but in a lot of ways rewriting it into like a sadder version of the truth or kind of like sitting in the sorrow of it. And I wanted to try to write a song like Be Again, um, which is on the new record and talks about kind of taking ownership back of your body. And if something bad has happened to you in the past and to your physical body um, and it's not happening anymore, that you can have, that I could have the ability to rewrite the story of myself and what I'm, what I've experienced in my body so that now I can say, this is all mine. And I get to choose what happens to it. And 
I get to choose um, kind of how whole I am or not and kind of talking about dissociation ideas around that. And then in a song like Feel Life, which is also on the record, it's also, that song is sort of like the story of the accident, so that I could give that a voice and then be able to rewrite it in, in a more positive way for myself. A song then like Fold Up, which is just sort of like a song about my desires and kind of feelings like post-accident and that it it just like is very much how I felt before. Like I still, I didn't become like a, a completely new person who like never complained about being lonely or having, you know, um, unsatisfied desires or something, you know. I didn't become Buddha after I fell off the roof. I am still going to be... Um, working on becoming a better person and kind of dealing with my usual things. Um, but I can see it from a different perspective of gratefulness and knowing that I have the ability to choose kind of how I tell my story and how I walk on this world. Some of the songs on this record were recorded while you were in a physical back brace, which, you know, I'm a singer. Uh, I know that that would be very hard to breathe and have control over your voice when when your when your voice and, you know, your back and and your your stomach's restricted. Um, Yet Mm -hmm. there are some songs in this record that you made a conscious decision to keep the recording of you singing in a back brace because it kind of left you breathless and gasping in a way. You can hear it a little bit in the song Be Again. So what was it like to kind of, you know, emotionally to be singing while in a back brace and also to kind of like retrain yourself how to sing while having this restrictive device around you? You know, it kind of reminds me of my new favorite thing that I'm doing now, which is taking freezing cold showers and like deep breathing through it and trying to learn to calm myself even when I'm really uncomfortable. And at first when I had the back brace on, I was like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't sing. Even though it wasn't pressing on my diaphragm, it was just the, um, the sort of like this panic of kind of feeling restricted because my ribs were, you know, pulled in tight, but I could still breathe. It was about calming down and learning how to breathe differently 
and sing differently um, because I wanted to, because I wanted to have something to do. And it was one of the only things I could do was write and, um, and I could still sing. Um, and so after a couple, you know, a month and a half of healing, I kind of was like, I want to do something. And so that's what it reminds me of. It reminded me of just when you're in a very uncomfortable position or you're in discomfort and kind of realizing that a lot of it is about just that discomfort. And once you kind of calm down your um, neurons and tell them to just chill out a little bit, you're like, I can still sing. Okay. Um, so it was, it's all those kind of things are so helpful for me, at least uh, my character and my kind of like propensity to just to try to be stronger, yeah. a stronger person. <laughs> I'm speaking with Chani Lena. She is the front woman of Polisa. They are out with a new album called When We Stay Alive. And on this album, about half the songs were recorded were written before your accident of falling off your roof. And then, mm -hmm. but before the accident, you had actually just kind of taken a break from music entirely. Can you talk about why you took that break from your music career before the accident even happened? Yeah, we had been with, we're with different booking agents now, but we had been with booking agents who had done, you know, um, in the U.S. had done really great work for us in the beginning. But now um, with our last record, United Crushers, they just said, you know, there's just really not a place for you in any music festivals because they're, you know, they're just looking for new and up and coming or they're associated with different labels that which we're not on. And so they just said, we can't really, you know, there's just really no offers for you guys. And then in Europe, it was kind of, you know, our booking agent there, our old one was saying that um, we were kind of done in his mind and there wasn't really a place for us. And as many people know, um, it's really hard to change careers and it's hard to figure out what else you're good at. And mostly I just felt like, oh, I, was, I wasn't really good at this thing that I have been doing since I was a child. And so I was just, you know, I was like trying to go back to nursing school. I was training at the post office. I was teaching preschool. I was going to tons of job interviews. I was applying to different school programs and seeing what else I could do. I was like starting back in the end of high school and I was like reading career finding books about what colors your parachute. And mm -hmm. I just more and more felt like I was mediocre and I wasn't really good at anything and completely lost but then after the accident, I couldn't, you know, work. So what happened after the accident is I didn't leave saying, oh, I'm ready to go at the music industry again. And I'm, I'm ready to like put out this record. And I really, you know, I had the time to finish this record and I still love music. I still love writing music, but also, you know, the music industry is changing and it's okay for me to keep exploring some other work for myself and um, without the feeling like I failed in anything. It's just music isn't always going to be my career, but it's always been there for me and it always will be. That was my conversation with Polisa's Chani Lena. Polisa's album, When We Stay Alive, was released Friday. The latest album from Tacoma's Guayaba was inspired by their nightmares, trauma, and the worry of death. KEXP's Dusty Henry has this profile. Guayaba's album, Phantasmagoria, addresses nightmares and worries of death with a mixture of trap beats, bossa nova, and nods to tropicalia and dark surrealism. Uh, 
soy way out What it do, I'm that bug nasty crew I with the piercings and the tattoos I refuse to settle for anything less than what I know I'm Voted the best local album of the year by the Seattle Times Critics Poll It's easy to see why Guayaba's opus is resonating with listeners Following her bombastic 2016 LP, Black Trash, White House Guayaba has expanded their sound with lush, surrealist arrangements Working with everyone from local producers Eric Paget and Wolftone to Nirvana cellist Lori Goldston, Guayaba's Phantasmagoria plays like an opera, exploring the dark night of the soul. I wanted to bring the drama of, of something like Lucia de Lammermoor. These sort of like extremely dramatic operas in which someone is like descending the staircase just like covered in blood and... I think that things like that are able to convey so much emotion. In December, Guayaba and I sat down to discuss the record's heavy themes and the multitude of fascinating influences and images that inspired her celebrated work. I first asked Guayaba about the description for Phantasmagoria. And in the Bandcamp description, you include the definition of that word, which is a sequence of real or imaginary images like those in a dream. Can you talk about how that idea informed the record? So a lot of the record is informed by trauma. That's something that music is, like, I think that a lot of people are able to express trauma through music. You know, it's it's very cathartic. Um, you know, I think that a lot of things that people go through are are much like nightmares. You know, it's things that, you know, like a lot of things that I experience in real life are not nearly as horrifying as the things that I see in my dreams and also a lot of my dreams, despite being dreams, it's like they always have horrifying elements to them. Um, you know, I have like a lot of specific things that happen in my dreams. Like there's always like rivers filled with crocodiles or I'm always getting like chased by packs of wild dogs. And like I sort of wanted to convey this uneasy feeling of of nightmare images, the ones that you remember when you wake up and the things that carry over from when you're awake into your sleep. I get sleep paralysis pretty often. And that definitely also informs the record. I also, like, I was dealing with psychosis for a while, and I'm still uh, kind of coming down from that. And it causes a lot of strange hallucinations. And it's, you know, like the concept of the phantasmagoria definitely comes into that. You know, it, it kind of obscures your reality, and it kind of makes those worlds blend into each other. A lot of the themes um, kind of center around like like fatalism and like like this one killing jar, which is one of my favorites on the record. I try to read, I stumble through a um, which has this great line where you call yourself the queen of the damned if I do or I don't. Queen of the damned if I do or if I don't. 
craving the Holy Ghost ever since I tasted His what draws you to these themes? I mean, these seem like really heavy topics. Is it difficult to, to discuss them in your music, or is it, does it feel cathartic and, and natural? Um, it is extremely difficult, if I'm honest. I, I definitely have a pretty serious death anxiety, and it's something that I was trying to use to sort of come to terms with. Um, it's been a really weird year for me, you know, and not anything serious, but it's like I've had to have, like, um, I had to have surgery and um, I, I, like, broke my tooth and all of these, like, minor things that I was afraid were going to build up to something. Like, I'm I'm 27, so I was afraid that this was the year. Um, but it's, like, getting towards the end of it, I'm like, oh, you know, I just have to come to the terms where it happens and there's nothing that you can do about it. Um you know, but at the same time, I don't feel like this record helped that at all. You know, I'm really impressed by people who are who are able to become death doulas, and it's something that I've been looking into. I really feel like I need to come to terms with it. I one of the medications that I'm on, uh, the side effect, which is insane, just bonkers, is uh, feelings of impending doom. Um, so I feel like that definitely attributes to it, but. It's kind of horrible to be had to have that dark shadow looming over you all of the time. I wanted to put all of my thoughts of death into this album to make it so I thought about it less. Sunday is gloomy, my hours are slumberless. Dear is the shadows I live with on it's so interesting because you hear all of you these different sides of your perspective throughout the record and in and, and different ways sonically too. And then you you end the record with a with a cover of um, Billy Holiday's Gloomy Sunday. Angels have no thoughts of What, what drew you to that song and, and why that was the, the note you wanted to go out on on the record? You know, we kind of wanted to do a more bossa version, um, you know, just to put our own spin on it. There's something about it that I just, I didn't want to do it in the traditional way. You know, I didn't feel like it matched the tone of the album. I wanted it to be as the curtain is kind of raising. You know, it's like the curtain is raising, but there's still... A very uneasy atmosphere. Not only is the song about death, but so I've been told my father's mother before she committed suicide, she was also a musician and she had opened for Billie Holiday. So I kind of wanted to do an ode to that. It's considered a suicide song in its original language and was uh, when it was translated into English, you know, it's just one of the saddest songs that exists in English. You know, I think so. I thought it was important to put on the album.
you mentioned like you didn't necessarily feel like the album gave you any like closure it sounds like but um does it at least has it reframed for you anything about how, how you think about these things or was it any give you any sense of where you want to think next artistically I, I do think that I have a, a better sense of how I feel about death because I had to think about it so much for creating this, even though I, I still think about it all the time. I thought about it all the time beforehand. But, you know, when I was recording, it, was, it felt like it was inside of me in a different way. That was Guayaba speaking with KEXP's Dusty Henry. This is Sound and Vision. A new law went into effect the new year that will make it easier for artists and bands to perform after being in a festival or other music event. Washington State's new non-competition law limits the amount of time a musician can't play other venues or festivals to three days. Music festivals often have musicians sign so-called non-competition agreements, also known as radius clauses. It bans musicians from performing sometimes months before or after a festival within a certain radius around the festival or venue. Non-competition agreements have come under fire, especially for some large festivals. In 2010, the state of Illinois investigated Lollapalooza for its radius clause. Lollapalooza banned artists from playing within a 300-mile radius of Chicago for six months before the festival and three months after. And then in 2018, a Portland-based festival called Sold Out filed a lawsuit against Coachella for its radius clause. Coachella's radius clause bans artists from performing festivals from December 15th to May 1st. Nicholas Harris is the festival organizer with Sold Out. He says Coachella's radius clause reached 1,300 miles, which impacted his festival all the way up in Portland. 1,300 miles would be telling someone that you're playing an event in Miami and you can't play an event in Philadelphia. A radius clause that large made a big impact on Sold Out. Harris says many artists he was trying to book weren't able to play Sold Out because they were getting booked at Coachella. And if anybody's familiar with Coachella... Um, They understand how ludicrous it would be that a small regional festival in the Pacific Northwest, um, 1,100 miles away from L.A., uh, could be a threat to Coachella, which is an event that sells out immediately, two weekends, 125,000 tickets, um, nine months before they announce a lineup. Radius clauses and non-compete agreements impact smaller acts and performers. Alia D'Alessandro performed at Seattle's Capitol Hill block party with her band, Trace Lechase, in 2019. She says Trace Lechase was paid $250 for the gig. And that's the rate Trace Lechase was told was the maximum Capitol Hill block party would pay for a local act. Trace Lechase had been writing a song leading up to the festival called 250. While D'Alessandro says a song wasn't entirely inspired by Capitol Hill block party, it sure does seem like it. The song even mentions how many local bands were offered 250.
addition to Tres Leches getting paid $250, they also had to sign a non-competition agreement that said Tres Leches couldn't perform in the Seattle region for 45 days before and 45 days after Capitol Hill Block Party. Tres Leches can bring home $1,000 headlining a local venue. So D'Alessandro says the band actually lost money by playing Capitol Hill Block Party. And I think it's unfair to ask somebody to both play for less than what they're worth and then not only ask them to play for less, but then to, to also not pursue an opportunity where they could compensate themselves fairly. Jason Lajeunesse organizes Capitol Hill Block Party. He says he was planning on changing the non-compete clause even before Washington state's law went into effect. For Block Party, we were not planning on having a radius clause this year for local um, kind of smaller bands as it is. Washington state's new non-compete law applies to many industries in Washington state. The initial bill was brought up after State Senator Marco Leas realized non-compete agreements were applying to workers in sandwich shops. Really what uh, stood out to me was the experience of Jimmy John's workers and folks that had worked in uh, low-wage retail jobs where they were being forced to sign non-competition agreements. And, uh, you know, they're just trying to put food on the table for their families and are finding limited opportunities because of what these large corporations were doing. And then when we dug into it, we found more and more and more examples of places where it just didn't make sense to allow this uh, kind of unfair Uh, restraint on trade and restraint on the ability to earn a living. So for like the Jimmy John's workers, it was like, okay, if they quit Jimmy John's, then they couldn't work for, say, Subway, basically? That's right. Leah says no matter how big a performer you are, this new law applies. So now if you're headlining an act at, say, the Gorge, you could play a Seattle arena three days after. But most touring acts generally don't schedule their tour stops so close together. But it did come to a surprise to many festivals in Washington state that this bill actually became law because they were never consulted about the law. This kind of just passed, became a law, and festivals didn't really know about it. But now that this has become law, some festival organizers and venue owners say this three-day limit could impact them financially. Harris of Sold Out, the festival back in Portland, he says he was surprised to hear Washington State is acting on non-compete agreements. But he says a tiered system might be more fair, where non-compete agreements are appropriate for big headliners and festivals, but maybe not for smaller acts. And he also doesn't think the law should apply to all industries. It would be more effective if there was a law that just applied to the music industry. If you're going to do something specific to the music industry, I think it needs to be just that. It needs to be specific to the music industry, not covering everything from, you know, subway sandwich artists and tech startup guys and, you know, whoever else. It remains to be seen how this new law will play out here in Washington state. Festival season is still a few more months away. This is Sound and Vision. Now time for the listener question of the week. This week we asked, what is a song that captured a certain moment in history or point in time? And here were some of the answers. This is Liz from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I wrote in to talk about The Land of Confusion by Genesis. And this was a song for me that represented the 1980s perfectly. The important thing about this song is to look up the music video so everybody should find it online and watch it if you don't remember it from the 80s or even if you remember it from the 80s it's going to trigger a whole bunch of things when you when you look it up and watch it again so the great thing about this was it was like a nostalgic 1980s video 
while it was happening in the 80s. When you look back on it, it's got everything in it. It has Ronald and Nancy Reagan. And when I was a kid, Just Say No to Drugs with Nancy Reagan was a big thing. Ronald Reagan was huge. All of the 1980s kind of nemesis leaders, Gorbachev, Mussolini are in there. We have a We Are the World spoof with Michael Jackson, Sting, David Bowie, Madonna's in there. So they're all in puppet form also. So these are some crazy puppets that were made in England. So I remember as a kid in the 80s, about eight years old, just sitting in front of MTV, which was huge. That was peak MTV season and watching this video and taking it all in. And it was current at the time and it could even be applied to other times throughout history and it, it it stands up today so it's it's an excellent video an excellent song and for me that's just 1980s and in, in three minutes Hi, I'm Jerome Stewart. Um, I live in Mill Valley, California, just outside of San Francisco, and I, I currently work in the Bay Area. You know, I'm from New Mexico. I, I grew up literally playing in the dirt. Um, you know, those moments that many of us can remember when we didn't have apps, we didn't have devices to distract us. I find myself sometimes longing for that basic environment. I'm, I'm both the beneficiary, but also a great critic of the digital revolution. You know, the apps and the devices that are making our lives easier to navigate, but they're also sometimes adding a layer of complexity that I think, again, many of us uh, sometimes desire to, to not have. Um, so uh, the song that my mind goes to is Helplessness Blues by the Fleet Foxes. This song, to me, calls attention to a simpler time, a classic time, and I acknowledge this time may have never existed. It's the time, you know, again, uh, uh, like the one that I, that I had when I was in New Mexico, but this was when we could work or live uh, with our hands and achieve happiness and self-satisfaction. Some of the lyrics really stand out. If I had an orchard, I'd work till I'm raw. If I had an orchard... I'd work till I'm sore, and you would wait tables and soon run the store. It's beautiful. If I had no I'm Joe, and I live in Snohomish, and in the year 2003, my daughter ended up in the hospital for a week with a really bad respiratory infection, and um, it was really scary because we almost lost her. It was also the same week that the Iraq war had started, and so those two things for me were really connected, and I learned a lot about the civilian casualties and you know how it impacted children. And so when the Radiohead album Hail to the Thief came out, 
There was a song, I Will, that talks about a parent being in a bunker protecting their children. And it just really, that was a real connection for me. And I very quickly was singing it to my two daughters as a lullaby. And, you know, just after watching hours of cable news about the war, it was just very emotional to me having almost lost a child. And um, even to this day, it makes me emotional to sing it or play it. And um, I'm just really thankful music is able to connect me to what's happening in the world. I'm thankful for that song. I won't let this happen to my Everyone who took part in this week's listener question, I will try to tweet out next week's listener question at some point this week. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Fox on the Radio. And remember, I'd also love your feedback on this podcast. We are toying with the idea of pushing out more Sound and Vision episodes each week with just one interview or story per episode. And that might also mean we lose the listener question segment of this podcast and maybe the last question, why does music matter? I don't know. We're toying with it. Let me know what you think of these possible changes. Do you like hearing everything at once, or would you prefer to pick which stories you hear and when? Write us at soundandvision at kexp.org. Again, soundandvision at kexp.org. Also, if you do love the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Those things really do matter in this podcast world. KEXP is also a publicly funded station, so it would mean a lot if you gave a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. Okay, now time for the final question. Why does music matter? Here's Jenny Lena of Polisa. Hmm. I was having this conversation and I think, you know, there was a time before it was a commodity or before it was selling identity more than it was music where it gives you that feeling where you um, kind of like choke up and when you like you think about people going and hearing Lead Belly play for the first time and recording him and people were so moved by the sound of his sadness and his you know experience inside his throat that someone was able to sing out the human experience and other people felt heard for the first time by listening to something that is why I think music is important like if I hear a flamenco singer and I like I don't know what they're saying but I feel like I feel what they're feeling and I think that building of community and connecting us is why music in its purest form is very important. <laughs>